they're doing worse manual labor than you could imagine. So my word of caution is when you design a social metric, think about the consequences very carefully. So that's my little soapbox. And now let's talk about why we're going to include societal costs and benefits in a return on investment. Uh, I've been doing this for 14 years. So many people are actually interested in this topic. <laughs> I love it. But one of the things we found initially, totally people are focused on you reduce your risk when you look at this. Um, and, and this has been a topic all throughout this conference. You have the opportunity to improve relations with your employees, with your community, with other stakeholders. It's a great way to, to uh, get them engaged, but it also gives you higher productivity. And, and helps you keep your license to operate. It helps you improve your return to investors. We saw some of that this morning, how that actually works. And the whole process improves buy-in. Uh, when you engage your stakeholders, they tend to like what you're doing, or at least understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, and feel like they have some feedback, some, some input into it, into making the decisions better. And that's really the big thing is optimizing the decision. We found that we've been able to optimize decisions for more stakeholders by doing this process because you identify where you have trade-offs where you can make it a more win-win solution. There are a bunch of different ways to do this yet. We're in the evolution phase. Um, 
we're, we're in the new metrics, as someone said. Uh, so you, you'll see different things. You'll see quantitative versus qualitative. And this, um, when I first saw the, the qualitative thing, I thought, yeah, this makes sense. But even we do that, most of ours is all quantitative. But you can, in some cases, we'll say, okay, this stakeholder is going to benefit from this decision. And there, from a little bit of a benefit, and we don't have the tools to quantify that, but they're benefiting it from it. So let's just set them aside and work on the hard problems. Uh, you'll see that some of these methodologies look at the cost-benefit by stakeholder, and others only look at the benefit to the investor. Some are considering only culturally, culturally insensitive issues, and these are some of the areas that we've seen focused on today, often where you see people start health and safety impacts, uh, pretty universal types of, of ideas. And then we see also consideration of many or even all different types of societal issues. Some are including only guarantee costs, and others are uh, allowing uncertainty into this, uh, and when you've got risks and opportunities, pulling these uncertainties in makes it a, a very powerful process. Uh, and then we can see standardized costing methods, which may make some people feel uncomfortable. Somebody said that human health is still just one year, so X, that may work for you. Other, other ways of looking at it say, range of values, uh, allow the stakeholders to have input into that. And then you also have averaged valuation where you take everybody's value and you say, okay, well, on average, our population says this is the best thing that we want, that uh, maybe greenhouse gas emissions, climate change is the most important thing we should look at, and, um, and child labor is the next most important. Uh, or you can use um, a stochastic valuation, have different stakeholders have different values and bring that into the conversation. All of these pretty much have common principles. This is, this is the good news <laughs> where we're starting to converge. Involve your stakeholders. Now, sometimes within a company, there's, there are legal barriers to actually involving the stakeholders external to the company. So what you can do is bring in a representative of those stakeholders. So you might bring in your PR group to represent the community. That works. Uh, you want to understand what changes. You don't need to look at the whole life cycle and everything in it. You really want to look at what is changing when I'm doing this project or making this decision. Uh, value what matters. And uh, this this is, is done by a number of different ways, streamlining, um, just limitation by time. The, the most important stuff, allow it to float to the top and, and grab it. Only include what's material. We heard that this morning. Don't overclaim. Be transparent. This is really powerful. Uh, working with a lot of companies where they haven't been transparent, they've held this in, and I believe that I compare that with when we've done it work with companies and allow the information to be transparent, and it's so powerful. Uh, they have been able to make leaps and bounds, differences, they've been able to put in projects that they wouldn't have been able to put in. 
and then come back and verify your result. What's changed in the last 14 years? As I said, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, when I first started, there wasn't a real good definition of the process. And so you'll, you probably, you may, if you've been in this space at all, you may have seen a bunch of different ways. There's a lot more definition around that process and, and so that it becomes a doable project. There's more guidance on valuation. He's going to talk about that. There's reduced cost to perform the assessment. There are really good tools out there now. There's the ability to have online discussions through either webinars or social networking within the tools. We are including uh, uncertainty analysis in the assessment, which 14 years ago we weren't doing. And we've added analysis by the stakeholder, where originally it was just by the investor. This is the uh, methodology that we use. We call it sustainability return on investment because we do pull in the environmental and economic issues. They are, of course, issues. Uh, so define goal and scope, how to do that. Uh, do a traditional return on investment as our baseline. We can pull in life cycle assessment results depending on the process. Identify your stakeholders. Bring your stakeholders in. Streamline the analysis, and then hold a workshop. And this can be an in-person workshop, or it can be an online workshop. And the first thing you do is identify your stakeholders again. Why? Because internally, you may not pick them all up. This external group, this, this, these other people who are, you've now involved, they may find, they may know of stakeholders that are involved in your process totally outside of your scope of thought. Um, we did an assessment of uh, uh, sawmill where they had a gasification system come in and it turns out we affected the cattle farmers. I'll show you that in a second. Conduct your impact assessment, feedback to your decision making. Oh, sorry. In the workshop, we're going to identify risks and opportunities, identify costs and benefits with those risks. Then we do our assessment and feedback to the decision making loop. And you may have to loop through this depending on how complicated your, your question is. So here's the, the quick example. The sawmill put in the cogent system. They had, uh, this is kind of like a flattened probability curve. So this intersection here is 50% probability. This outer gray section is 90% probability. And then the full gray bar is your, your total range. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't put the full uh, information on the other ones. But uh, so the sawmill had a little probability of loss, but most likely was going to do pretty well. Cattle farmers, uh, they were going to lose their bedding. They have the biggest risk here. Uh, the, the composters and paper manufacturers might have to pay a little bit more or find different sources for their materials, but that was something they could deal with. These cattle farmers were going to be not so good. On the other hand, the community and the woodcutters are going to do really well. That's my part, and now I'm going to turn it over to Rip to um, discuss his case study. Thanks. Um, so I want to take you to the to where I see the front lines of developing new metrics, uh, and it's an industry you probably didn't think of. Uh, it's the extractives industry, mining, oil, and gas. Why is this a good place to look for the, the frontier of tools, of techniques uh, for measuring and valuing sustainability? Because these firms have lost over a billion dollars of shareholder capital. When you lose a billion dollars of shareholder capital and you have to explain it to the board, you have to explain it to investment analysts, you start putting investment into developing better tools, better strategies, better methods. Newmont Gold had a mine in Uzbekistan expropriated when the government there decided it would be preferred to, to side with the Russians rather than the U.S. Uh, they had massive losses in Peru after they thought a mercury spill by a supplier wasn't their responsibility. 
Uh, and then the best strategy, once they accepted responsibility, was to offer a bounty for the collection of the mercury that the small children had collected. Uh, the villagers along the supply route to the mine uh, responded to the bounty by thinking, well, the price of mercury is going to keep going up, so let's put it in the safest place we know, the safes we have under our beds, piles, you know, holes in dirt under their beds, leading to increased mercury contamination. They were also uh, hit with NGO protests in Indonesia uh, for following best practice uh, supported by some environmental groups to do underwater disposal of tailings. In each of these mines, they didn't earn the cost of capital, much less the revenue they'd foreseen when they put the engineering and the financial plan forward to the investment committee. So in 2010, the board demanded that they come up with a better strategy. The board demanded that they put forth a new approach to dealing with environment, sustainable, sustainability, community, political and social actors in a way that wouldn't cause these kind of losses in the past. Looking ahead, they knew the next generation of mines wasn't going to be in Australia, it wasn't going to be in the United States, it wasn't going to be in Canada, it was going to be in places like Ghana. It was going to be in continental Africa, in Latin America, in Central Asia. It was going to be in places with massive political and social concerns and environmental concerns. So the executive who was in charge of leading this effort in Ghana, uh, a man who I cooperated with in developing this case, a man named Nick Cotts, was proud of what he accomplished. Uh, within a few years, he'd taken Newmont from winning the Public Eye Award to being on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. He'd put forth new processes and new, place, uh, new processes in place to engage with stakeholders, to do the kind of things we just heard about, talking to them about what's important to them, bringing them into the decision process, creating a foundation that was getting 1% of total revenue uh, and 1% uh, of profits uh, that the community decided how to spend money on. And then he was going into an investment committee meeting after a few years of the success and, and Newmont joining the sustainability index, uh, thinking he was going to be fighting at the margin for whether he get to do three or four mo uh, more projects the next year. And he got caught off guard. The first question the CFO raised to him is, Nick, what about if we're spending too much? And he kind of took it as a joke for a second. He said, what? You want to know how much money we could cut before someone dies? And the guy said, no, I'm serious. How do we know? I mean, we've been ramping up your budget. You've been doing all this great stuff, 1% of profits, 1% of revenue. We've got happy people around the community. We've got the government on board. We've eradicated malaria in a province. Maybe we've gone beyond the point of shareholder value maximization. The specific quote, he said, look, every other decision I make in this budget review process is based on the business case. But when it comes to sustainability, the argument always shifts back to what's right, what's better, what's moral. The answer can't be that we always have to spend more. At some point, it's eating into profits that we could return to shareholders, wages we could pay our employees, investments in new mines we could make. Tell me why we're spending this money. Until you can, your budget's fixed. And that's where the story starts. He turned to the International Finance Corporation, uh, who had made a presentation to him a few months ago about a new tool they developed called the FV Tool, uh, funded by the government of Norway, the State Department of the government of Norway, uh, who's trying to make sure that other countries uh, avoid the resource first, the same way Norway has, funded by the IFC and funded by Deloitte. At the time, he thought this tool wasn't that important. He questioned the value of quantifying. He thought sustainability was something that couldn't be quantified. It was a process. It was a human element. What was the point? He didn't have the time. He didn't have the resources to do it. But now he was confronted by the fact that he had to do it. So he went back to Veronica Nyan-Jones at the IFC and her team uh, and started the rollout of a pilot project on the FV tool. Whoops. The goal of the FV tool is, is simply to calculate the NPV of a portfolio of sustainability investments. To answer the question of what is the right set of investments, 
and what is the financial return they're likely to bring. Importantly, and I want to close at the end with this point, it's not just that you get a number. It's not a crystal ball that tells you what to do. It sets you off on the process that everyone who believes in the important sustainability uh, believes companies should be taking. At, in a nutshell, we're essentially doing a scenario analysis. We're running an NPV calculation on the cash flow model of a project or of a business. The existing cash flow model, not a new one, not an alternative one, not one the sustainability team came up with, but the one the investment team and the finance committee is using. And we're comparing, well, what happens if we do scenario B? In this case, instead of just eradicating malaria in the communities around the mine, let's broaden it. Let's go to the province or let's go to the country. Water and sanitation. Instead of treating the water and eliminating diarrhea just for workers in the communities around the mine, let's broaden it. And then let's figure out the NPV of scenario A versus scenario B. How do you do that? Here's some example calculations that they went through. They've worked with the World Bank on a land, uh, they have a problem, uh, one of the challenges is there are people living on top of the mine, so they have to get people to move. And in the first wave of land resettlement, they took a pretty hard-edged financial approach. Look, this is how much your land is worth. Here's the contract. You know, this is the best we can do. And if you're asking for more, you're just, you're holding out. You're just trying to get a better price. It's not going to work. We're going to hold fast to our price and our offer. We're not going to negotiate. Then, working with the World Bank, they engaged in a more of a participatory process. They had the stakeholders determine what the right price was, how much they should get for cattle, how much they should get for land, for different crops, what the adjustment compensation would be. As a result of that process, the total compensation was actually less per hectare than it was in their process where they took a hard-edged business calculus. And more importantly, it was several months faster. If you're making a billion-dollar investment and you can open the mine seven months faster, that's a pretty clear NPV. In fact, it's an NPV of $700,000 because you're not discounting your revenues into the future. On malaria eradication, they, they, it, in, by eliminating malaria in the community around the mine, they reduced the incidence of malaria by their workers from over 3,000 to zero. Each incidence is associated with $120 of lost productivity and $30 of medical costs, plus the additional lost work if families members contract malaria and higher recruitment and retention costs because people from elsewhere in Ghana don't want to come live near the mine because they might contract malaria. Cost $850,000 to eliminate malaria. This is NPV positive in year one. These are the no-brainers. The harder ones are the indirect benefits. Where did they go to get the data? They went to the chief risk officer. They went to the chief finance officer because these projects have risk registers. The CFO is responsible for dealing with. And some of the risk registers some of the elements of the risk register relate to stakeholder-related risks. Specifically, there's a risk that there'll be a roadblock, and the roadblock shuts your mind down. That plan that the engineers and the financial team put forward to the investment committee, it assumed the mine would run 24-7, 365 a year for the next 30 years. Guess what? On average, it shut down one week every other year because of a roadblock. Uh, when that happens, you're losing $3 million plus one week of lost revenue. Serious complaints have to be investigated. Exploration protests occur every other year. Fines and legal judgments occur. All this is data from the books, unforeseen costs and lost revenues that exists in Newmont Gold Corporation's financial records and on the risk registry. They worked to come up with, with estimates of how different initiatives, eradicating malaria across Ghana, eliminating diarrhea in the region, would affect stakeholders' opinion of them and the likelihood that stakeholders would engage in blockades, would participate in legal suits. And importantly, these probabilistic estimates weren't made by the chief sustainability officer. 
the data was entered by the CFO and the accountants on the company. So they're conservative estimates. And they're probabilistic estimates. For each of those risks, there's an estimation of the annual rate of occurrence assessed with a distribution, in this case a trigen distribution. What's the duration? How many months in each case? What's the cost? What's the lost revenue for each of these different indirect risks? And then you run a Monte Carlo simulation, 10,000 draws from the distribution that you picked. And you look at the sensitivity of the results. And this was the spreadsheet, an anonymized version of the spreadsheet that he took back to the CFO. The return on our sustainability portfolio is somewhere between 27 and 47%, higher than any crusher, any person, any piece of capital equipment that's on the table. Not only did his budget not get cut, the CFO became the champion of the sustainability effort. He devoted some of his staff and his resources to the sustainability team. And the entire company now is looking for ways in the HR side, on operations, on security, to address stakeholder concerns because they realize that's the best way to increase revenue and increase profits. So the transformation isn't just we deliver a number that says we're doing okay or we should get more money. The transformation is in a way a, a transformation of culture, a transformation of processes in which sustainability goes from being a siloed organization, being one that's second class or third class within a gold company, to being one that's central to the process of value creation. A couple learnings. One, the direct value, the easy cases, malaria makes money in year one, that's the tip of the iceberg. 70 to 80% of the benefits are through the risk mitigation effects, and so we need to measure those and calculate them seriously. One thing they felt in the pilot they didn't do very well was have real good, uh, real strong data estimates of how stakeholder opinions would affect roadblocks, would affect protests and legal judgments. It was a little bit of a finger-sucking test, uh, to use the finance team's uh, expression. So in the second pilot, in the second wave, which started earlier this year, they did more stakeholder surveys, more stakeholder uh, analysis to get better data on how stakeholders uh, impact them. Uh, and in the 10 minutes I have, I don't have time to go into that process, but I'm happy to touch on it in Q&A. But more importantly, and this is the point I'll close with, it embarked on a series of cross-functional conversations and collaborations, new ways of budgeting, new innovations, coming not just from the sustainability team, from across the business. And let me use the words of the people involved. First, the sustainability team. When we first heard of this tool, those of us on the social side were happy to get something that would help finance understand us. Now we're more confident in costing the programs we do. It puts us in a better position with finance. In previous meetings, they had figures, and we just had to talk to explain. Now we put figures to our words just like the other departments. The change within our team is marked. We know what we're trying to mitigate. We know the costs. Previously, the program owners on the sustainability team could not connect the dots to risk mitigation and value creation. Now we challenge the numbers. Now internally, we're saying what's the right initiative? Which one delivers value to the company? And perhaps more powerfully, from this finance team and the accounting team, my biggest surprise is that it's possible for the ESR team to have a conversation in financial terms. Every conversation I had with them before, they could never articulate assumptions, they could never acknowledge costs and benefits. Now they can and do. They have their act together. They can explain the business case. Finance and ESR are now working together much better than before. Just those changes alone justify the investment in the pilot. In the last business meeting, the accountants here have said, I saw a huge improvement in the sustainability team's presentation of budget supported by data. It used to be they would schedule the meeting, they wouldn't tell the accounting team. If the accounting team time came, 
came in, they'd be told there wasn't time to go over it or there wasn't a chair. They weren't part of the conversation. They were an afterthought. Now they're central because they've demonstrated they create value. And that's why the real takeaway from the case, coming back to Nick Cox, the group executive for ESR, is that it's not about calculating the NPV. It's about getting beyond NPV, where we all want to go. But in order to get there, you have to get the buy-in from the people who have the organizational power, from the finance, operations, accountants. And to do that, you have to start with calculating the NPV. So it's the first step of getting where we all want to go, beyond NPV. Thanks. Okay, so now we go. 
got like 10 people, okay? Um, and we, that's a great illustration on how to monetize. Actually, that just jumps right to the end there. And it shows how feasible it is. So, this is my acid test, okay? I am going to move this needle, or I'm gonna do the best I can in the next nine minutes, so that at the end of this, uh, many more of you, let's hope two or three times more of you will stay standing up when I say probably not or definitely not. Um, now look around the room, who's standing up, because in the break, grab them and ask them how they're doing it, okay? Okay, thank you for your illustration, that's perfect. Okay, so now, um, so here's what happens, okay? Um, so social impact, right? So social return on investment. So it's an equation. You've seen it before with ROI at least, and it's the same thing. So now we go, oh my God, okay, wait. There's two parts of this equation that are really scary. Impact and monetize. Really? Take that, try to put a monetary value on what it, what it means to save a life, right? Like, ah, you know, I don't want to do that. And, um, and the cost of this, so this is extremely rare. Social benefit, NPV, or, or return on investment, is extremely rare. And the cost of this is huge to our society. So we know from meta-analysis, this is US data, that if you look at the studies that have been done, about half the efforts, social efforts that we do out there, don't work. Okay? About half of them don't work. The problem is that so few of them measure this, it's about fewer than 20% of social efforts out there, even try to do this, try to measure the impact, forget the monetizing, try to measure the impact. So few of them measure it that we don't know which half of the things we do don't work. So we're bringing in kids into programs and half of those kids are not being served. That's ridiculous. So the cost of this reaction is really, really high. Now let's go to a nicer place, okay? I'm gonna give you three examples of where you can get to. So the first one is a company that I work with, is Caesars Entertainment. Oh, here it is. I don't. Okay. So basically, the question is like, how can we communicate? They're they're very green. They do a ton of things. Uh, a very robust program helping the community. So how can we present this value? So here's what they've got. Okay. So they can say they can tell a community. They can say, hey, if we are in your community, for every $10 million in revenue that we produce, we're going to give twice the monetary social benefits back to your community than the average U.S. company. Now, this is all I'm going to say about this, um, but it's all here, okay? And it just cites the, the white paper, Caesar just very... Um, is, is very generous sharing their study, their, their findings. So if you say something nice about me, I'll give you one of these, okay? Any compliment, okay? And if you can't think, all right, <laughs> right on, there you go, I love it, okay. And if you can't think of a single nice thing to say, uh, just write on the back of your business card, I'll give you the URL directly where you can go. You're wonderful. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I like your you guys, I love this, I do it. All right. Um, <laughs> they have to say nice things about me, though. Okay, yes, now you have to say nice things about Lisa. So this is the first 
example number three, let's take a really abstract concept. One of those that we're like, oh my god, this can never be measured. What is the value of taking one homeless child and reuniting them to their family? What is the monetary value of that? I mean, that's that's about as out there as you can get. Okay. Well, here it is. Okay, so for every dollar invested in this program, this is a Canadian organization, $56 back in societal benefit. Okay, so now those are Canadian dollars, so they don't really count. <laughs>
it means it can be captured. Okay, so I will go out there in a limp. If if you if if you have something in mind, and I do this with my Georgetown students in, in the ten years, but I haven't failed yet. But if you have something in mind that you think there is not a valid indicator out there, then um, call me. Okay, and if I can't help you with it, I will take you out to dinner. Okay, all right. So, um, that's the first problem. The second problem is the attribution problem, which let's say that, okay, let's say that great, these, all these families have potable water. How can I say that it was my program that did this? Okay, so I will admit that this is a challenge. Okay, so when I mention these companies at NIHP, Caesars Entertainment, I usually don't solve this one. I will be the first to admit that I usually get the correlation. Um, and I don't solve it. But what I will say is that I almost always propose a way to solve it. It can be done. It takes a pretty impulse. It takes a comparison group. It takes you know regression analysis. Uh, but it takes money. But the other reason why I'm almost always turned down for figuring this out, and this was an executive at HP that said this, which I think was brilliant. He said, B, why would we want to take for our little piece of the puzzle. That's the worst team attitude possible. If we're out there working with all these nonprofits and governments and the things are getting better, I don't want to put a report out that says, well, HP is responsible for 0.82% of the benefit. It's much better to share the, the good news. So he's like, I don't ever want to create that figure and then have it leak into one of our reports. So. The attribution problem is there, but you know what? You should aspire to it. If your worst problem is like, we, all these great things happen. You know, we got rid of malaria. All these great things happen. We're not sure exactly how much of it is because of us, then you're in good shape if that's the worst problem you have. So don't let that stop you. Then the last one is we live in a really, uh, so the last issue, remember, is like, really, I'm going to put a dollar value on life? Like, how am I going to do that? So you don't have to put a dollar value on anything. It's already done out there for you. All you have to do is go look for it. Okay, so there are four places to look. The first one is somebody else is, spend, is already is spending money to create that impact. So dollar value in life. Insurance companies use this figure all the time. It's $53,000 per year of life left. Okay. So they will invest in a medical procedure if you know if it meets that criteria. EPA uses seven million dollars. They will do something if 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 those if they can invest seven million dollars to save one life. So you don't have to come up with it. It's out there already. Okay. The second place to look is societal costs that it would avoid. Okay. So the example I gave about reuniting youth with their families. Um, the reason, uh, the, the, the way they got those uh, $53 is that they said, okay, police services, emergency services, uh, emergency medical services, and several other services, muni the municipal costs. Actually, we had a better example earlier on that. So that's another place to find the dollar figure. What do taxpayers pay to generate this impact? That's another place. So what's the value of teaching one child to read? Well, you know what? We've already decided that as a society. We spend a certain amount of money between 
between kindergarten and fifth grade. And that, we've already valued that. So you just have to go pull that value and use it. And then what does it sell for? Potable water? Well, there's a market for potable water. So sometimes there's a market you can go to. Or for example, uh, I work with one company that, well, said that they're very involved in health, obviously. So one of their nonprofits got these, these kids to exercise every day. What's the, val what's the monetary value of exercising every day? Well, we have a market for that. It's called gym membership. As a society, we're willing to spend $50 a month to, to exercise every day. That's what it's, 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 it's valued to us. So they use that. So the, the last one, which is like, how do I take, how do I apply monetary? You don't have to come up with it. It's out there in society. We monetize everything. Okay. So same challenge, if there's something you can't monetize and I can't solve your problem, then you also get a free dinner. Okay, so, um, okay, uh, except, actually, here's what we're gonna do. Does somebody have an example right now of something that is really hard to monetize? We're gonna solve it in a minute. Anybody? Yes? So I'm with Fair Trade and we have a mechanism for empowering workers to invest in making changes themselves. That's a big part of our model. Empower, okay, so how do you monetize the value of empowering one worker of making change themselves? What kind of change? Well, so investing money they earn in a program versus an NGO saying, oh, we'll do that. So they vote. They earn money. They vote on how to spend that money. And that's an empowerment mechanism that really spills over okay. into other decisions. Okay, great. Okay, so let's just take empowerment because that is really kind of abstract <laughs> and gushy. Uh, Okay, that's 
think that that they picked out malaria as the top uh, obstacle in health? And um, did they also were there any health effects that were more directly related to mining as opposed to just living in the area? And well, see, I mean, the reason that malaria was so easy was it was so easy to quantify the benefits. I mean, you know, lots of other with HIV too. They're losing more money due to workers not showing up and health costs than it costs to deal with the problem. So that, that was loading for a heart. Right, and it's solvable with bed nets and water treatment. So I think the reason they chose it first is it had the most impact on the company. I think you know, one of the contrasts that really highlight is, you know, I'm talking about MPV to the company, and that's where it's an easy, you know, you can create value for society and create value for the company, it's a no-brainer. You know, if you start talking about monetizing social value, monetizing it for who? Are you sending money to the government? Well, I mean, that's a harder sell. How do you actually turn that back into something that benefits shareholders or that the government's going to help you with or should the government do it? In my case, it's actually it's not the company's balance sheet that you're creating this value. And, and that's why malaria was just first. You know, the other issues that face society more broadly and not, but nothing that directly impacts the money as much as mine. What about the health effects of, of like mining in general? Uh, so, and this is out of the context of this study, but in a, I, I've got a matched sample of Peruvian communities. Peru is a country that has some of the most greatest conflict around mining. We've got a, a sort of community level data on every country, every community in Peru, which is by the Peruvian government. And we're able to look at what happens to human development, life expectancy, child mortality, stunting uh, in otherwise identical communities before and after a mine opens. And there are unquestionable health benefits and life expectancy benefits to having a mine. Now, some mines give a lot more than others, and there are some mines that cause societal harm. And the average mine is creating benefit, even in Peru, and some mines are doing a lot more than that. So, you know, there are costs, and, and there are ways of dealing with them, and, and you need good regulation, and, uh, and you need transparency, and you need NGOs watching mining companies. You know, 20 years ago, there were a lot bigger problems. But the average mine, even in the most contested environment, is creating positive benefits at all. One more question, and we're gonna, you, can, you can grab any of us. We'll take one more, just to make sure we get out of time. You mentioned focus first on MPP, and then there's an opportunity to have to go beyond any speed in response. Yes, uh, the, this is creating a catalyst for investing in partnerships between humans, uh people who are focused on development agricultural cooperatives, people who are focused on training programs. They're starting to see NGOs and, and industries that they previously thought they had no connection with. They previously said they might train mechanics. Well, why would they train people how to grow mangoes? Um, but now they're starting to see that they have, the biggest thing they can do is create stronger economic livelihoods around the line and somehow be associated with that. And so they're reaching out to more members of civil society. They're hiring more people from the NGO community. They're more ex-UN workers working in Newman. They're transforming the way they perceive themselves and who they want to have on their payroll and who they want to have as a partner. As a result of this, they're, they're recognizing they can't be the solution, but they can be a bridge or a partner to help make stakeholders around the money reach their high schools and aspirations. And, and this is part of that. And it's all based on the business case, which is right. And, and that realization is in the sustainability team alone, where it always sat. Yeah. It, it's in the finance, accounting, HR, and operations team. Do you have an engineer to think like that? That's transformative. Sorry. Okay. <laughs>